Hello and welcome to eBible Fellowship's Evening Bible Studies with your speaker, Chris McCann. If you'd like more information or to hear more studies, visit our website at www.ebiblefellowship.com. And now, with your evening Bible study, here's Chris McCann. Good evening and welcome to eBible Fellowship's Bible Study in the Book of Genesis. Tonight is study number 11 of Genesis chapter 8. And we're going to begin reading in verse 8. Also he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the ground. But the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot, and she returned unto him into the ark, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. Then he put forth his hand and took her and pulled her in unto him into the ark. And he stayed yet other seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark, And the dove came in to him in the evening, and lo, in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off. So Noah knew that the waters were abated from off the earth. And he stayed yet other seven days, and sent forth the dove, which returned not again unto him any more. Now, we're continuing to look at the spiritual uh, significance, or the deeper spiritual meaning of what's happening at this point in the flood account after the 150 days, after everyone is dead on the earth, God is really um, taking the time to give us many details concerning the voyage of Noah and his other seven family members and all the animals. And the Lord is... Again, giving us information that might otherwise appear insignificant. What does it matter that Noah opened the window of the ark and sent forth a raven and, and then he sent forth a dove and the dove, um, could not find a place to rest the sole of her foot. So she returns and he sends it forth again. She comes back with an olive leaf and it goes forth a third time. Of what significance is that to people who approach the Bible and don't understand how God wrote the Bible that you have to look for the deeper gospel meaning, the spiritual meaning? It would maybe be interesting history about the flood, just minor details that would be forgotten in a moment until we understand that Christ spoke in parables, and without a parable, he did not speak. And that means all the Bible, every statement in the Bible is parabolic in form. That is, every statement in the Bible hides truth. And and some are statements as Christ spoke parables, the kingdom of heaven is like. Others are hidden declarations for God so loved the world, or in this manner God so loved the world, and and so forth. But everywhere there is hidden truth, and therefore all scripture is a mystery. It's a parable that must be revealed to us or interpreted to us by God himself, and he's given us the method of interpretation. Compare scripture with scripture, harmonize your conclusions, and above all, The Holy Spirit guides us into truth. 
We, we need the Holy Spirit to direct us. And, and even after doing all that, we need the Holy Spirit to open our understanding that we might understand the scripture. And, uh, you know, it's, it's unfortunate. It's very sad. It's actually tragic that there are so many numbers of professed Christians that read the Bible and don't understand what they're reading. And they, they would hear a, a teaching that digs into the Word of God as God instructed us to do, looking as for buried treasure. And therefore you have to dig underneath. You can't just skim the surface. But they would hear these kinds of things and say, oh, spiritualizing and, and reject it and, and go back to their wooden, very superficial, very much on the surface understanding of the things the Bible says, the historical aspects, the, the grammatical, the, a few moral teachings and, and, and direct statements, literal direct statements. And they miss so much. We can't help but feel sorry for people who approach the Bible in that manner and they, they just miss the abundant riches. They, they miss the treasure. They're basically content with the fool's gold that's lying on the ground above. Uh, you know, uh, gold miners used to talk about that. It, it was basically worthless. It's what you find very easily. And you no, know, you have to go to work with pickaxe and shovel. You have to dig and put in the effort in order to hit the vein of actual gold, the real treasure, the real riches. And it's the same thing when it comes to the Bible. God has hidden truth. And and again, uh, we can only pity and feel sorry for people that cannot see it, that don't know how to go about finding it, they're they're blinded because, as Jesus said, when the disciples asked, why do you speak in parables? To you it is given, and yes, it's given to us, but that, that is, the understanding is given, but it's, it's not given to us uh, without effort. We must put forth study to show ourselves approved, the workman that needeth not to be ashamed. Yes, it's given to the people of God, to the elect, but to them, that's the rest of mankind, the rest of professed Christianity. It is not given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And so they miss out. They read about the one day is a thousand years and yet seven days, and they don't see the spiritual connection as it relates to the timeline of history. Or they miss out on the shutting of the door. What are you, what are you talking about? Salvation is over. That, that God ended his salvation program. Are, are you out of your mind? You're basing that on the statement that God shut Noah in on the 17th day of the second month. God shut a door. What does a door have to do with anything? They don't, they don't, um, see the connection. They don't, understand spiritual definitions. When Jesus said, I am the door, then all of a sudden the shutting of the door takes on all kinds of of meaning and purpose, but they don't see 
that God has written the Bible with the Bible being its own dictionary. In order to understand a word, you have to search the rest of the Bible to define it. The door identifies with Christ, salvation, and entry into the kingdom of heaven, and so forth. And they don't understand the dove. It's a a, a bird. It's an animal, a creature that was on board the ark like there were many animals on board the ark. Why blow it out of proportion? Or how can you possibly assign so much meaning to the sending forth of a dove? And, and yet, it's not me who's assigning that meaning. I didn't write the Bible. None of the Lord's people that are alive today wrote the Bible. God wrote the Bible. And God is the one who made these kinds of identifications. He's the one in Matthew and Mark and Luke and in John that wrote that the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost descended upon Christ like a dove. The Lord is the one who selected the dove. He didn't say like an eagle. He didn't say like any other kind of bird. But the Holy Spirit descended like a dove at the point when Jesus came up out of the water. His baptism was completed and he ascended up then the the Holy Spirit descended upon him, and the Father made the pronouncement, My beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. And it all relates to God's gospel program as baptism is tied to death and, and the coming up, the ascension out of the water to resurrection, and and the Lord uh, Jesus declared to be the Son of God through the resurrection of the dead. We see all those things in view and the connection to the dove and the Holy Spirit tied together. So, what are we to do? What are we to do when we come to Genesis 8 and we find a dove spoken of mentioned five times? Not uh, well, yes, a, a raven, and we discussed the raven, but now a dove takes center stage. A dove is brought into sharp focus, and we can't help but notice the relationship between what's happening historically with the flood and Christ coming up out of the water, being baptized, and then the dove makes an appearance. And here... The flood has covered the earth 15 cubits above the highest mountain. The 15 cubits have gone down to the point where the tops of the mountains are seen. And and then 40 days pass before the windows open. And and the, the raven and the dove are sent forth. And so the earth, the new earth, is beginning to appear And, in a real way, the ark is starting to come out of the water because eventually it will be completely out of the water. And God is the one that has tied these historical events closely to a dove, just as the dove makes the appearance after Christ comes out of the water in his baptism. Well, we saw 
in Matthew chapter 3, before the baptism of the Lord Jesus, it was said at the end of verse 11, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And we saw how that related in verse 12. Again, um, God made another connection to the wheat being gathered into the barn and burning up the chaff, which occurs at Judgment Day. So that's the time that the Holy Ghost will baptize the elect with fire. And let's go at another place in Matthew 20. In Matthew chapter 20, we read of uh, James and John, beginning in verse 20. It says in Matthew 20, verse 20, Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children, with her sons, worshipping him and desiring a certain thing of him. Now, James and John, Zebedee's children, are spoken of also in Mark, In Mark 3 and in verse 17, it says, And James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, and he surnamed them Boanerges, which is the sons of thunder. So James and John have the surname that was given to them by the Lord of the sons of thunder. Now, If we go to the book of Job, chapter 40, we read in verse 9, Hast thou an arm like God, or canst thou thunder with a voice like him? God speaks, and it's as thunder. Now, where has God spoken? In the Bible. The Bible is the word of God. It comes forth from the mouth of God. Therefore, the word of God, the Bible, is like thunder. And God speaks through his word. It's as thunder that is sounding all across the earth. And especially, uh, and, and, and it had to be in the day of salvation, God spoke like thunder And the word of God impacted the hearts of God's elect that that had been predestinated to salvation. And they became saved. They became sons of God, sons of thunder, sons of the word of God. Because the word of God quickened them. It brought life to them. And they were born again, sons of thunder. So James and John, as The Lord Jesus surnames them sons of thunder are really representative of all the elect because we're all sons of thunder as God and his word. His voice is likened to thunder and we've been made born again through that voice. Well, the mother of Zebedee's children came with her sons. It says in verse 20, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit the one on thy right hand and the other on the left in thy kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and to be baptized 
with the baptism that I am baptized with? They say unto him, We are able. And he saith unto them, Ye shall, again, notice the tense is future, Ye will drink indeed of my cup, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with, but to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my Father. Now, who is it prepared for? The elect. The reference to being prepared for the elect, or um, it is not Christ to give, but those for whom it's prepared. When you search out that word prepared, it leads right back to the elect, just like James and John, sons of thunder, or a picture of the elect, and and so they will be seated at Christ's right hand and at his left. All the elect will be. But the important thing we want to look at is verse 23 when Jesus assures them. Jesus declares to the elect, ye will drink indeed of my cup. Now, what is the cup? And I would encourage anyone to look up the word cup in the Bible, to do a search in Strong's Concordance, and you'll find um, in Jeremiah 25 that the Lord speaks of giving the cup first to the city called by his name, then to the nations, and it's the cup of wrath. Or we find in the Gospel accounts when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's in an agony and, and a heaviness is upon him, that he's pleading with God that the cup might pass from him. The cup involves the wrath of God. Remember in Revelation 14, it says in verse 10, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone, in the presence of the holy angels, and in the presence of the Lamb. There is the cup of the wrath of God. Well, Jesus again, let's read this, says to James and John, the sons of thunder, ye shall drink indeed of my cup, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. Now, we have spent some time discussing baptism and that it's the washing away of sin. And we we saw how Christ was baptized at the foundation of the world when he died bearing sin. And we, the elect, were baptized with him, in him, through his death, we were buried. And died. And the Bible's clear about that. Because in order to be baptized or to, to be washed, you have to bear sin. And, and Jesus had the sins of his people upon him and was cleansed of them. We at the same time, simultaneously in him, had our sins washed away. So we were baptized. That's the point of Christ's baptism and our baptism. Well, then, the question remains, why is the future tense being used? Ye shall drink indeed of my cup, 
and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. Oh, someone says, you're all wrong about the foundation of the world. It's going to take place at the cross, except when Jesus was drinking of the cup, beseeching the Father that the cup might pass from him. Were any of the disciples with him? No. Where were they? They were off a distance sleeping. They could not watch one hour. Christ came back and said, What? Can you not watch with me one hour? So certainly, when Jesus was drinking of the cup, the the disciples were not with him. They did not watch with him. You see the emphasis that's being placed? is They did not drink of the cup at that time. Christ did, because that was the time of his demonstration. That was the time in Hebrews 9 when God speaks of the one offering in payment for sin. It's at the foundation of the world. But then he also lays a trap and he speaks of the one time he appeared for sin. And that was in 33 AD in time. And and, and so that was Christ's appearance. We were with him, the one payment for sin at the foundation of the world. We were not with him in the garden or when he went to the cross in time in 33 AD. No, that was the time of his tableau, his demonstration, not the time for ours. Not the time for the people of God to likewise demonstrate following his steps. As it said in Matthew 3, you shall be, future tense, baptized with the Holy Ghost and fire. And then it spoke of the, the gathering wheat and, and the burning up of chaff. And, and that's judgment day. That's the future time in which Christ is referring to James and John. Ye shall drink indeed of my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. Not at the cross in 33 AD, but way into the future. Now, we can prove it's not at the cross if we turn to Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, it says in verse 5, For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Now, that proves that the baptism of the Holy Ghost that was referred to in Matthew 3, that Jesus said to James and John, you'll be baptized with, that baptism did not occur at the cross because Acts 1 is after Christ's resurrection. It's after he went to the cross. It's after he rose from the dead. Actually, here in Acts 1, it's at the point of the 40 days where he showed himself with many infallible proofs, and and he's just about ready to go up to heaven. So here God is saying that the baptism of the Holy Ghost is still future. But John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be, again, future tense. You will be baptized with the Holy Ghost. Not many days hence. 
Well, now, now people who were mistaking about the baptism of God's elect occurring in Christ at the cross, they're uh, led off onto another wild goose chase because in the next chapter of Acts 2, there's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so they make the wrong association and they say, well, this is referring to the Holy Ghost that is poured out on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. Except the outpouring of the Holy Ghost is not the baptism that Jesus was baptized with. It is not the cup. Where is the cup in Acts chapter 2? Because Christ told James and John, equally, they will drink of the cup and be baptized with the baptism he's baptized with. All right, if if you identify baptism with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, where is the cup of wrath? Where is the cup of wrath? You, you can see why people would misidentify and relate it to the cross, because at least there there was a cup of wrath. There there was the demonstration of baptism or death by Christ. But those same elements are not in view on the day of Pentecost with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now, God does make reference in verse 8 of Acts 1, when he says, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. That's referring to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And it's the official beginning of the church age, the official completion uh, well, actually, we can't say it completed at that point, but from Christ's coming in 7 BC, it was all related to that point of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in 33 AD. And so all those things would get underway, but it is not. It, it's the Lord once again um, speaking of things related to the Holy Spirit in close proximity, and people confusing the two. The official outpouring of the Holy Ghost, or its coming upon the disciples in Acts 2, signaled the beginning of the church age and the first jubilee period. It was not the baptism or the drinking of the cup of wrath. No, that doesn't qualify. It doesn't fit the description. And again, was there any um, gathering of wheat into the barn or burning up chaff when the Holy Ghost was poured out on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2? No, no. It's off into a very distant future, about 2,000 years later, when Judgment Day comes. That's when there will be the baptism of the Holy Ghost with fire. Now let's turn to 1 Peter, and I think we're going to see something that leads us right back to the flood account and why the dove making an appearance is so significant. In 1 Peter 3, it says in verse 19, speaking of the Spirit and, and Christ in the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the Spirit's in prison, which sometime or aforetime were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah 
while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Now, we don't have any more time in this study, but it's a good place to stop. Think about it. God just tied together the water that destroyed the earth in the days of Noah to baptism. And here we see the dove when the water is going down, the baptism. And up out of the water comes the people of God and a new earth. Thanks for joining us for eBible Fellowship's Evening Bible Studies. You can hear these studies Monday through Friday over PalTalk, Skype, eBible Fellowship's webcast audio, or over your phone. For more information or to hear other studies, visit www.ebiblefellowship.com. Until our next study, may the Lord's perfect will be done.